Our guest today is the legendary acting coach and film director, Michelle Danner. Now, her new film, Miranda's Victim, has an all-star cast with Abigail Breslin, also Luke Wilson and Ryan Philippe, Andy Garcia, and Donald Sutherland, just to name a few. Now, the film tells the true story of Trish Weir, played by Abigail Breslin, who was kidnapped and raped by Ernesto Miranda, leading to the creation of the Miranda Rights. Now, Michelle Danner is also one of Hollywood's top acting coaches and has worked privately with Salma Hayek, Gerard Butler, and Seth MacFarlane, even Penelope Cruz, and so many more. So how's that for A-list talent? Well, Michelle was a longtime student of legendary acting teachers like Stella Adler and Uta Hagen. And Michelle's eclectic approach, which she calls the golden box, allows actors the freedom to employ a wide variety of techniques. So, ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome legendary acting coach and film director Michelle Danner and her brand new film, Miranda's Victim, to the show. Welcome, Michelle. Hi, how are you? Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's I, it's an honor to have you on the program today. And I must have to ask, how did you first get into acting? Well, my father um, in the 60s became the president of the William Morris Agency. I don't know if that had anything to do with it, but we moved to Paris when I was a little girl. And I would play under his desk at the William Morris Agency when all these big stars would come in and share their dreams and talk about their vision boards. But I very early on became absolutely immersed in literature, in theater, in film. I would go to the library and come back with literally 25 books and would devour them all. I would go to the theater all the time. I would mount plays in school. So when I was a teenager and we moved back to New York City and I got a chance to study with, as you mentioned, Stella Adler and Uta Hagen, it was it's just incredible to study with these extraordinary, iconic teachers that no longer are here, but uh, they passed it on. They passed it on, you know. And I think the goal of anybody that teaches acting is the contributions to pass it down to the next generation. So I was lucky enough to study with these incredible teachers. You know, I have interviewed some actors who had the opportunity and the honor to study under those like Stella Adler. And there is just something that separates them from the rest, especially the new generation of actors. And uh, they're very articulate, uh, very educated. They they educate themselves. So I have a feeling that it has a lot to do with uh, Stella's teaching. Uh, but for you, what was it like to study under Stella and Uta? Oh, I mean, I remember an extraordinary class called Script Interpretation. It was a script analysis class. And as a matter of fact, there's a book, uh, Stella Adler and Ibsen, Chekhov, Strindberg, and it's right out of the lectures, right out of the horse's mouth. And to hear her really break down great text and offer her insights was, you know, I have, I still have my notebooks, the, the ink looks very old, but uh, I will, uh, you know, worship these books. I learned a lot from her. And of course, I was in, you know, scene study class and technique class with her, with other teachers. In terms of Uta Hagen, her and Herbert Bergdorf, her husband, which I also took classes with him, went down and created HB Studios on Bank Street. And I took lots of classes there with them and with other people. And, um, you know, it was just a great time in my life because I was 
innocent. I knew nothing. I was a sponge, so I absorbed it all. Well, how did you become an acting coach? It was very organic. I think I studied so much and I had so much information and I would constantly be mounting shows with actors that they were asking me, can you coach me? And so at one point I remember distinctly having three auditions that I had to go to. One was in Pasadena, the other one was in Hollywood and the other one I think was in Long Beach. And I was like, I'm gonna be in the car all day. And seven people called me to coach them. And I had to make a choice. I was like, well, I'm gonna coach the seven people because you know, they need me. And the auditions, I'm not sure if I'm gonna get them or not. And I'm in LA and I'm gonna have to be in the car all day. So I, I chose that path and, and did not look back and did not regret it because there's just something wonderful when you see the light bulb go on in, in actors' eyes and when you try to offer, you know, some some insights that work. Um, so that's that's how it came about. Then I started to teach classes and then little by little I opened a conservatory. Now I have two schools, the Los Angeles Acting Conservatory with a lot of programs where students, actors come to study with us from different parts of the world and a Michelle Danner acting studio where uh, there's also more classes for younger, uh, you know, kids classes and camps. And we have a great space in Culver City close to Sony Studios. We have a theater and we have a classroom and an outdoor space and it's very quaint. Well, can you kind of give us a quick study of what you call the golden box? Yes, the golden box is, uh, for me, because I've studied with so many wonderful teachers and different philosophies, but I never believed in dogma. I always ran when somebody was like, well, this is how you do it. This is how you act. I was like, what? That cannot be. There's got to be many different ways. And so uh, my, my approach to it was eclectic. It was a little bit about using these tools and that tool. And I just believe that actors have to form their own toolbox, their golden box, only them. You know, it's a unique key. It's their key. And they put tools in it that they feel work for them. Uh, you know, some people like to work with their imagination. Some actors like to work with their personal lives. Uh, you learn things on set. You learn on stage every time you do a play. Life lessons also go in that that golden box. So it's a unique toolbox, uh, very personalized, very customized for the actor so that they can draw upon that. So when they start to work on a script, whether it be for the stage or for the screen, they can, you know, take out their Crayola box and make choices regarding the character, regarding the relationships, regarding what they're doing in every moment. So well, it's an eclectic box. Yeah, that, that explains why you're one of the best in Hollywood when it comes to being, a, being an acting coach and a teacher. Can you think, you know, if you were to pick out one performance in film to be maybe one of the, the greatest acting performances you've ever seen, who would it be? It's impossible to do that. But of course, you know, the first image that comes to mind would be Meryl Streep and Sophie's Choice. But quite, and then in everything else that she's ever done in her life, including Murders in the Building, this last, you know, TV show that she's in. But I, I have a list. We all have the same list of those extraordinary actors that we would go out of our way to see their work, um, you know, of course. But, um, she comes to mind. I particularly love this movie, Heat, when Al Pacino and Robert De Niro sit down at the table 
and have a face to face uh, two great giants, you know, acting giants that are sussing themselves out and x-raying each other. Um, I mean, there's so many. Uh, now, of course, you know, this is the, the season of, of movies and, you know, there's so much, so much to see. I loved Killers of a Flower Moon last night. I watched the holdovers every day I try to watch, you know, a movie. It's always very inspirational because there's just great movies out there. And then you have to go back in time and you have to make a list of all the classics that you might have missed. Yeah, very, very much so. This is going to be one tough Oscar season, I will say that. And for you being a film director, what is the great advantage for you knowing that you're also an acting coach? So if you're on set and you're dealing with actors, I guess you have a bigger uh, a bigger way to get inside of, of the actors than directors who really have no acting experience at all. Well, I mean, I've been very lucky and fortunate to work with, you know, giants. I mean, Donald Sutherland recently and Andy Garcia and Kyle McLaughlin and so many others, Mireille Nuss. Uh, I mean, actors welcome ultimately a third eye. They welcome, you know, feedback. They want to know how is this coming across. And, and if you offer a few things that, that make sense, I think that, uh, you know, they're, they're very happy to hear that. I have had nothing but extraordinary experiences with my actors, um, mostly all of them, 99.9. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I just, I love actors. I love the collaboration. I love the conversation. I love the rehearsals. I love the actual doing. And then I love showing them, you know, the afterwards when everything's put together, the jigsaw puzzle, you know. Oh, it's, absolutely. It's, well, let's talk about this brand new movie I had the opportunity to watch Miranda's Victim. What attracted you to the screenplay? Well, it was offered to me, and I've been uh, greatly passionate about crime mystery, as a matter of fact. I have to mention it in every interview because I've gotten so much, you know, shit for me watching Datelines and 48 Hours and Forensic Files and every crime mystery you can imagine. And my sisters, my family always made fun of me and... They're like, are you still watching those things? And I'm like, well, yes, it's interesting to get into the head of people that act out on their dark side. Um, so um, it was offered to me and uh, I was very happy and I went and I met and, and then I didn't hear back for several months. And I know they were interviewing other directors, but ultimately it was meant to be. So it came around to me. Uh, they liked my vision and, um, you know, it was just... It, it was a great honor to direct the story that had never been told such an iconic story that changed the way, you know, uh, the law uh, changed the law in America and in other countries. Everybody has a variation, not everybody, but many countries have a variation of the Miranda rights and different states have a variation of the Miranda rights. And this was a fight for civil rights liberties. And of course, it, it brought up people don't know the story. So they don't know who Miranda is. They just know, you know, you're being read your Miranda rights. The last movie I did before, um, you know, this movie, Miranda's Victim, was called The Runner. And the first scene in, somebody's being read their rights. You have the right to remain silent. You have the right to, you know, and I never questioned it. I never asked, how did that come about? So this movie, Miranda's Victim, is from the perspective, uh, the point of view of the survivor. Um, which is Patricia Weir, not Miranda. They should rename the law, maybe. But uh, Miranda's uh, the Miranda rights uh, 
it had to do with his rights, but it's not. It wasn't to protect the victim. I actually question that because you bring up a very vital point. Throughout history, no one's ever questioned as to where these rights came from, and so I was a bit elated when your film came out to actually bring this story forward because, I mean, you know, we talk about landmark cases at the Supreme Court, and this is a landmark case. And I have to agree with you because when I watch the film, I'm like, why would you name the law or the rights after the criminal? Right. Well, that's what happened. And, uh, you know, listen, the law is there for the guilty and it's there for the innocent. And But uh, Patricia Weir was the the survivor, the victim uh, that was abducted uh, at midnight on March 3rd, 1963, and driven to the desert. I actually went to Phoenix, Arizona as part of my research and walked her path from the night where she worked at the Paramount Theater. And then she took the bus and was driven to the desert. I went to the house that she grew up in, that she got married in. I went to Miranda's house. I went to the courthouse where he was in, indicted. There was a, this whole museum there with a strong presence about the case, about Ernesto Miranda. Um, I, I, when I stood at the bus stop, I started to cry. I was surprised. I was myself, my God. I said, 60 years ago, this woman met, you know, a horrific nightmare in this corner. And then I thought to myself, you know, it should have been somebody else, not her. But then it had to be her, I said, to myself, because she had the strength. She was brave enough to see it through. The story of the Miranda rights is, is, is really intriguing. And for you to take on the story, and, and like you said, no one has ever questioned where the rights came from, but every crime drama, every film that we've ever seen, even every TV series, we hear the Miranda rights being read. But like you said, no one's ever questioned it. But being that the film is based on a true story and that this story changed our judicial system forever, how did you go about trying to balance both the rights of the victim as well as the perpetrator? Well, I told the story from Patricia Weir, Trish's perspective. But, um, you know, I, I, I believe that one is innocent until absolutely proven guilty. And so I didn't take sides. I, and I didn't take sides whether the Miranda ruling, you know, is fair or unfair. I basically, um, you know, told it from the perspective of the victim, but without taking sides, just objectively telling the story. I mean, the fact, you know, that the story had never been told, I didn't feel obliged to take a stance. I just wanted to relay it. Uh, as truthfully, as authentically as possible. And, you know, we did the festival circuit with this movie. Every screening, people, there was always one person that asked, you know, how true is this to the story? And it's very true. A lot of the dialogue was even lifted from the court transcripts. So wow. it was... Uh, well, so have you, did, was, did you ever meet Patricia in person? Oh, yes. She's a lovely lady. She's in her late 70s. Uh, we did together uh, the Morning Joe show. Uh, we had a big event where we introduced her in New Jersey in October. Um, as a matter of fact, I had the honor to walk her out on the stage. There were about 700 people there that stood for five minutes 
it was very emotional because she really represents courage. There's a postscript at the end of the movie, as I'm sure you've seen, that for um, a thousand crimes, only 5% result in convictions. And so that is a true statistic. And that means, and what, one of the things that I was so uh, you know, aware of is that so many women don't come forth with their stories. And so many of them came up to me with tears in their eyes, thanking me for this voice, this story, having given a voice to their story that they were never able to tell. So there are so many more stories, sadly, about sexual assault that we even know. Uh, for men and women, of course, this is a story about a woman being sexually assaulted. Um, and it also hit close to home for me. I have somebody very close to me that underwent it. And it wasn't until not too long ago that I realized through an interview that I could also call myself a survivor. I've had several instances in my youth as a teenager where I've encountered assaults. And I think that I did what, you know, the mother, the character Ziola does in the movie. I brushed it under the rug. Of course, I, I didn't let it define me, which, you know, it shouldn't, because if not, that's just a horrible burden to have to carry. But there's no, um, uh, people are, this is not something that goes away. It's a horrific crime that impacts the victim as Donald Sutherland says, who plays Judge Wren, you know, uh, she has to deal with this for the rest of her life. This is not a trauma that magically goes away because the perpetrator gets convicted. Um, and that, that is, and that's the very thing that I picked up in the films of all the crimes people can commit. It's the act of rape that silences the victims more than any other crime. Um, and when I and I saw the postscript at the end, where only five out of a thousand result in a criminal conviction. I mean, how alarming was that for you to read? It's unfathomable to think that there's so much terror and shame and very complex on many on many levels that women don't come forth. And if they do come forth, the risk is that they're not believed. I mean, in this case, the police, the detectives were trying to uncover the truth, but they, they still asked about doing a lie detector test, which prompts Ziola, the mother, to say, you see, nothing has changed in all these years. They don't believe you. And there was a documentary not too long ago that I've seen about how, you know, it's the elephant in the room. Uh, men, you know, protect other men that may have committed these crimes. And, uh, and a lot of people don't face justice. So this movie about justice really spoke to me. Um, and there isn't, I think, a person in the world, it's universal, that doesn't feel that, you know, when something like this happens, justice should be served. And what I particularly liked about this story and fascinated me is how justice came full circle. At the end, he did get his finger chopped off. If there hadn't been all that talk back and forth between the finger versus the penis, and and he karmically gets his finger chopped off, and then he meets his demise because, I mean, at the end of the day, he doesn't serve his full term. He gets out early. He gets out after eight years. And uh, I hope people don't watch this interview. They should watch the movie before watching yeah, this interview. Yeah, spoiler alert, people. But spoiler alert. Because, Michelle, the thing that really brought this um, I'm not going to say bring it home, but when the, the courtroom scenes 
are can be very traumatic because you know rape cases end up being <clears throat> you know they treat them as a he said she said situation and then you have lawyers and the, the way that they speak to people on the stand and they only ask questions to the point to where their questions are almost like traps and then the victim has to not only relive it but then he or she is the victim but certain lawyers turn around and almost pointing the finger and blaming her that the whole situation even happened, which is why so many women right. stay silent. Because just to get on the stand, that's almost as bad as the crimes in some cases. Because right. it's emotional rape. It's terrible. It's a horrific thing to have to relive. And, uh, and, and it's PTSD. It's in your body. It's a, it's a horrific thing. Listen, there's so much violence in this world, but this particular brand of violence, this particular crime, because it's so predatory and because, you know, you think many times, especially when it's men to women, sometimes it's women to men, but, you know, predominantly it's men to women. You know, you think of the man being, you know, stronger than a woman and being able to overpower her physically Um and then the damage that is done, you know, physically and psychologically and, and spiritually and emotionally, it's just irreparable. And that's what's it's really sad. I mean, you know, you can sweep it under the carpet. Like I said earlier, somebody very close to me, um, you know, was raped uh, when she was 16 and she decided to not deal with it. She swept it under the carpet, but it dealt with her because that's the thing when that kind of trauma, you don't want to deal with it. It ends up dealing with you. That's that's so true. Now, has the has the Me Too movement gained any traction, or has it just quietly died into the sea of clickbait headlines? Oh no, I don't think it's died. I mean, look what's happening recently. Definitely has not died, and it was a necessary movement. It was a necessary. Women had to speak out. There's no question about it. It bubbled, it bubbled, it bubbled until it, you know, the vase tipped over. Uh, no, I think that it, you know, it maybe did quiet down. Uh, you know, a year ago or two years ago, and you felt that it did. There was a sense that it did. But in fact, look at what's happening this last year. It certainly didn't. And rightly so, because when a crime is committed, uh, the criminal, the perpetrator, should pay the price for the pain that they've inflicted. Well, absolutely. I mean, when I watched the courtroom scenes in the movie, um those scenes are some of the most powerful scenes in this film. And, you know, in court, many of the victims become even more victimized just by being on the stand. And you showed that. Um, and, of course, this was the 1960s. Uh, you don't think that that type of scene would deter a woman from coming forward? Um. Well, no, because, I mean, she prevails, right? That's right. And also it's the 1960s. It's all 60 year, over 60 years ago. And that somebody could be so strong and defy, you know, society's rules, defy, you know, like the mother said, you will become damaged goods if you speak out. And yet she goes against her mother that she respects and love. Her mother is like everything. Uh, it so happens that in this case she's supported by her sister, which meant everything to her. Uh, and ultimately, her mother does come around. 
because we discover something about her mother. Um, so I think at this point I've given so much away that no, well, want- uh, well, let me ask you this. Let, let, let's get into the filmmaking process. When with, with Abigail playing the lead role and you being the director, um, what did you do to help her? Because this was a, this is a very intense role. Um, how did you, I guess, in a way, coach her through some of the difficult scenes? Yeah, we talked a lot. I, I think she felt that I was always there for her. We talked, we rehearsed. Um, you know, I tried to create a safe environment for her so she could take risks and plunge deep inside of her. It also so happens that she is a survivor of uh, sexual assault and that's publicized. She said it. She said it to me the first time we got together. Uh, you know, she said, that's why it scares me so much to do this. And I said, but you will heal people by doing this. You will contribute something really important to the conversation. Uh, she almost didn't do it. And then she was brave enough to decide to do it. Um, I didn't think she brought, you know, some incredible layers to the character um, on, on every level. But um, yeah, we, we had a great, we had such a great relationship working together on this one that after Miranda's Victim, I shot another movie, a comedy called The Italians and uh, about love and forgiveness and great Italian food. And she's in it and, um, and she's great in it as well. But it's completely different, different genre of movie. Uh, but we, that's how well we got along that we wanted to work uh, together again with each other. Well, well, that was really good for her because you go, she's going from this very intense role and then to do something fun and lighthearted afterwards, that I can see where that would be extremely helpful for, for, for one's uh, psyche when it comes to things like that. Right. Well, for, for the rest of the cast, for you, what was the casting process like? I mean, because you have an all-star cast in this movie. Yeah, I was able to get my first choices in many instances. Donald Sutherland, Andy Garcia, Count McLaughlin, uh, Brent Sexton, who plays uh, the Detective Neely's, Enrique Murciano, who happens to have been a student of mine a long time ago, and who uh, actually, I, we, his first movie, he's in, he's in my first movie, and it was his first movie. And I've always called him since to work, but he's always been busy. He's very successful. He works a lot. And this last time he said, I'm just going to have them kill me off this series so I can come do this. Uh, that's Enrique Morciano. And, um, you know, Emily Van Cam and Josh Bowman and Dan Loria, who I've worked with before, and Taryn Manning and Nolan Gold. And I mean, I, I've, you know, Luke Wilson, Ryan Felipe. Yes, I've been very lucky to uh, have these actors come and be part of this important story and lend their, their immense talent to it. It's been, you know, a journey like beyond. It never escaped me one single day on set. It's like, how did I get this great cast to come do this? Well, you know, I loved the synergy between Luke and Ryan in this film. Uh, they're, they're adversaries. You know, they're trying to uh, protect and, you know, fight for the rights of their own clients. But the way that they right. butt heads... And I mean, it's almost like, you know, even when I was watching it, sometimes there were times where I just wanted to punch Ryan in the face. 
<laughs> well, I mean, he was true to who that person was, that her, that uh, John Flynn, a historical figure, held court. I mean, he was like the lawyer of the time. He was, he was a star. He was bombastic. He was flamboyant. And he won mostly all his cases, except in this, in this case. Yeah, I mean, because... Um... And I, and I kind of wondered about that, you know, because being that the film was based in the 60s, how you were able to find out what the persona was and the personality of some of these characters and to really bring, you know, their own their own truth uh, to life. And, uh, you know, to see Ryan play that part, I mean, he played it to a T. And I, and I thought it was probably one of the strongest, and you know, next to Abigail's, I think Ryan's is one of the strongest performances in the film. Absolutely. He's, he's just a great actor, first of all. Um, but he came in and took on the flame of this lawyer. From the first scene, he really understood how to play him, and he had a great time doing it. I can imagine. Now, I know that this film reminds us how the resiliency of survivors and their courage to come forward can spark change. Uh, what do you hope that your film will do in terms of those who have been a victim of sexual assault? Um, I hope that this will inspire people to keep coming forth and not bury their stories because when you do that, I think you harm yourself more than coming forth with it. So I hope this is an inspirational movie that will not only inspire people that sadly enough have had something like this so traumatic happen to them, but also people that know people that can be there for them and support them through it. I completely agree. Now, what do you have coming up for 2024? Well, I'm editing right now this comedy called The Italians. I'm attached to several movies, one of them a science fiction thriller called Helios, another one called Party Crasher. And we'll see how, you know, uh, it's, it's always... The actor that's available, the financing in place, is it ready to go? And it's always that. Well, you are always welcome back. And, and we look forward to seeing all of those brand new films coming from your direction. And we would love to have you back and talk about each and every single one of them. Thank you very much for having me. Have a wonderful holiday. Happy New Year. You do the same, Michelle. And ladies and gentlemen, the feature film Miranda's Victim is about the most famous rape case in American history that led to one of the most influential Supreme Court decisions in the modern era. But few people know the real story behind the Miranda rights, with the profound suffering and bravery of one woman whose pursuit of justice changed America forever. Now from director Michelle Danner comes Miranda's Victim, which tells the story of Patricia Weir who is a teenager who was kidnapped and raped by Ernesto Miranda as she returned home from her job. And it was the early 1960s when rape victims were often shamed into silence and legal recourse seemed impossible. But Patricia bravely stood up and helped bring her assailant to justice. However, Ernesto Miranda was also considered a victim of sloppy police work and a failure by well-intentioned law enforcement officers to inform him of his legal rights. This case eventually gets to the Supreme Court, who order Miranda's release based on the now critical technicality. Miranda's Victim is a must-see film that is emotional and shows what one endures and how lawyers will twist the words of those who have been traumatized by sexual assault 
and then verbally assault them on the stand. Well, Patricia Weir is a hero. And if you have ever been a victim of sexual assault, you need to call 1-800-656-4673, a 24-7 hotline. Don't live in silence. Those who are victims of sexual assault feel like they are living with a death sentence of guilt, shame, and in some cases, personal blame. And you don't have to. Again, call 1-800-656-4673 for help. And again, thank you, Michelle, for sharing your film and your acting technique with us today. Thank you again. Thank you. And again, ladies and gentlemen, you can catch all the replays of our interviews with the top film directors, producers, and screenwriters, as well as actors, and more on both of our YouTube channels, both on Bond on Cinema and the Dr. Ward Bond Show. And we have, and we're also available on a dozen audio platforms as well. So I want to thank you for watching and listening, and I hope to see you at the movies.